Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. Everyone here needs a vision for life. You know what I'm talking about. That, that picture of the, vis- uh, the picture of the future that you have in your mind. And, and it looks like sometimes what you want to achieve over a longer period of time. That vision for the future. And of course, whenever you have a vision for the future, you have to set priorities. You've got to have priorities that will help you uh, have success. See the vision fulfilled. Here's a tool that could help you with that kind of thing. Uh, this is called the Eisenhower Decision Matrix. Matrix. Check this out. So this, of course, is named after Dwight Eisenhower, the 34th president of the United States back in the 50s. Eisenhower was um, the supreme leader of the Allied forces during World War II, in addition to being president. So he had a lot of decisions to make. And this is something that he invented to help him make decisions so that he could fulfill the vision that he had for his life, the vision that he had set before him. And and the way this works, of course, is that there are things that are labeled as important, things that are labeled as not important, things that are labeled as urgent, and things that are labeled as not urgent. Let's look at a sample of what this could look like in someone's life. So, for instance, in quadrant one, these are the things that Eisenhower suggests that you should do first. These are the important things, the urgent things. They're both important and urgent. So you got to file your taxes. Hey, that's good news, right? You got to file your taxes. That needs to go in that category. And then, of course, if you have a broken down car, you got to take care of the broken down car. We've all been there. If you have a crying baby, that is urgent and important. Men, that's for you. It's a little tidbit for you. I want to help you out. Urgent, important to take care of babies that are crying. And so you got to do that. Those are things that you got to do first. Well, then in the second quadrant, you have those things that might be important, but they're not necessarily urgent. This could be things like financial planning and, and exercise. People are thinking about that this time of year and, and home maintenance. These are things that are important, but that you can schedule. That's what Eisenhower said. You can schedule these kind of things. So that goes to quadrant two. And then you got quadrant three, when you're thinking about the vision of your life. These are the ones that could be tricky. These are the things that are maybe urgent, but they're not important. Things like emails. We all know what that battle's like with the inbox and meetings. And I guess dusting can go into that, you know, if you're in the household chores. And and Eisenhower says these are things that you should delegate to someone else. If you want to fulfill the vision of your life, these things that are urgent but not important, get someone else to do them. So hey, get the kids to do the dusting. That's one of your takeaways for today. I'm helping you out here with these things. And then finally, you have the last quadrant. These are things that are neither urgent nor important. And and these are the things that Eisenhower says you just don't do. When when you're thinking about the vision of your life, you just don't do these things because these are not priorities. So, hey, Candy Crush. I know some of you love to spend hours playing Candy Crush. You've sent me invitations on Facebook. No, thank you. That goes in that quadrant. Okay, these are things that are neither urgent nor important. Or how about gossip? Yeah, talking about other people and what's going on, whether in the church or your personal life, it's not important. Gossip, something to steer away from. It doesn't help you fulfill the vision of your life. And certainly the golden girls. 
I know a lot of you love to use some B. Arthur, but the Golden Girls go in the fourth quadrant, things that you probably need to stop doing because they're not helping you fulfill the vision of your life. This is the Eisenhower decision matrix. But here's what happens. If I were to actually give you one of these and to have you fill it out, complete it, realistically, honestly, about what you've done in the past week or the past months or the past year, the thing we would find is this, is that we have items that are misplaced on our Eisenhower decision-making matrix. We have things that are in the wrong category. We have, we're confused. And so the reality is the Candy Crush ends up in quadrant one. And emails end up in quadrant one. And exercise falls to quadrant four. Are you with me, people? The reality is, even though we want to have this vision for our lives, we know we need to have this vision in our lives, we'd set priorities. Our priorities often don't match up with what we say they really are. And how about faith? I mean, how about faith? We didn't even talk about that on the matrix. Your relationship with the Lord. I would say that the greatest expression, perhaps, of your relationship with the Lord would be prayer. Well, where does prayer fall on your decision-making matrix? I want to put the, the, the premise of this message right out there in front of you. Here's the premise today. My premise is this. Prayer is the key to everything we desire to be and do in life. Prayer is the key to your vision, in other words. You got a vision for your life? You need to have a vision? Prayer is the key to everything we desire to be and everything we desire to do in life. I want to give you a definition of prayer. We're beginning this series. We're going to be looking at prayer for seven weeks. And, and, and the definition of prayer that I'm going to give you is a classic one. It comes from the Westminster Catechism. And, and the, the question that's posed is, what is prayer? Well, here's what the Catechism says prayer is. Prayer is an offering up of our desires. I love that. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of his spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Keep all that in mind. We're going to be touching on some of those points today. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. So once again, I say to you, prayer, prayer is the key to everything we desire to do in life everything we desire to be in life. If you have a vision for your life, if you want to have a vision in your life, it starts with prayer. But let's be honest. What place does prayer hold in your life? What place does prayer hold in our life as a congregation even? I think we have to wrestle with this and we really have to consider, do we put th first things first? Because so often, the things that we say are important end up falling down to quadrant four or maybe off the matrix altogether. You know why? Because we don't put first things first. So we're going to look at the place that prayer held in the life of a well-known biblical figure. Pastor Robbie just read to you from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to see what this Old Testament figure, what he had to say and leave behind for us in terms of prayer. So let's go there right now with me. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to read to you uh, verses 1 and 2. And just talk a little bit about the background. Because there's a story here. There's a story. And you got to understand the background to truly appreciate the story. The narrative that unfolds here before us. 
and why prayer is so important. So let's go to verses one and two. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Hakaliah, what a great name. He would have been a great outside linebacker for the Steelers. I would totally wear a Hakaliah shirt. That would be awesome, Jersey. So Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Nehemiah, by the way, at this time is the governor of Judah, high-ranking official in Israel, someone who's respected and well-known among the people. And it says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So let's unpack some of this and give you a sense again of the story that's unfolding here. So we know that Nehemiah is the governor of Judah and there's some dates here that are mentioned. It says that this is happening during the 20th year. Well, this is specifically during the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the king of Persia at this time. Now, this is after Israel had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. That was a 70-year period. Well, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. And so now the Israelites are no longer under Babylonian captivity, but they're under Persian rule. And Artaxerxes is the king. So he's an important figure, and this is in the 20th year of his reign. That's what all this is happening. And it's happening in a place called Susa. Now, Susa is one of the oldest cities in the world. We could still go there today. It's in present-day Iran. And back in these times, it was the Persian capital. This was like the winter home of the kings. This is where they would go. It was like a resort for them. Daniel and Esther of the Old Testament, they also were in Susa. This is where they were. And so here we are. We're finding out about these things. And then we read this. I want to jump to the end because there's another piece of information here that will help us understand this passage, I think, and, and, and really frame the importance of prayer. If you go to verse 11, it says this, Lord, this is Nehemiah's word. He says, Lord, let your, attend, let, be, I'm sorry, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, this man being Artaxerxes, the king, because he says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, this is why this is important. We see here that, that Nehemiah was not only the governor of Judah, but he was also the cupbearer. This means that he was a high-ranking official in the royal household. He was the person who would choose and taste the wine to prove that it was not poisoned. And not only that, because he had such great access to the king's presence, it made him potentially a person of influence. And I want to park there for just one moment. Because when we talk about prayer, we have to understand influence. You know, first of all, because of Jesus' influence, we can go before God boldly. We can pray unto him. But there's also a matter of the way that we pray that should be highlighted and shaded by the influence that we have. Each of you has some kind of influence. Influence in your family. Influence in your workplace or your school. Influence in your community. How are you expending? How are you stewarding that influence? Are you stewarding it in prayer? Here's what Nehemiah was doing. He was praying to the end that he would have the use of his influence, 
that he could leverage it for the purposes of praying for this people, seeing the kingdom of God come. Are you using your influence in a way that would lead unto prayer? How about your family? If you're, if you're someone who is a parent or a grandparent, are you leading in prayer in your family? If, if you're talking about the workplace, whether you've got coworkers, whether you're high on the food chain or lower on the food chain, it doesn't matter. Are you saying, hey, can I pray for you? To those you work with, you live in community with. Nehemiah sets this example. He says, listen, my influence is one to be a person of prayer. And so how are you expending your influence? It's a big question here. We see that we've got this guy who's got influence, not only in Judah, but in the Persian kingdom. And we know this, he is someone who's very attuned to what's happening in Judah and Israel at this time. Now we pick up in verse 3, and we see what he is going to do and how he is stewarding the influence he has among the people that he's been given to lead. And he says this, they said to me, these people came back and gave a report about what's happening in Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Again, I got to give you just a little more history here. Understand that there were ruins left by King Nebuchadnezzar because of the Babylonian captivity. The, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed. They sat in ruins. But there was a remnant of Jews, about 50,000 of them, who returned to Jerusalem, and their first act was to try to rebuild the temple. So they worked on this on and off for a number of years, and the temple was finally completed about 70 years before Nehemiah comes here on the scene to us. Now, the one thing that didn't happen, though, was that the walls of Jerusalem were not rebuilt. The walls were sitting in ruins. And, and this, this wall sitting in ruins says this. It, it reminds us that the physical state of Jerusalem is tied to the state of the people. It wasn't so much the walls that were upsetting to, to Nehemiah. It was the state of the people, what the walls being in ruins represented to him. And so again, let's pause here and let's consider this. What does this say to your life? What does this say to me? What are the walls of your life, so to speak? Well, I'd suggest this. The thoughts and actions of our heart and mind, of our lives, reflect our personal state. They're kind of like the walls of Jerusalem. The walls representing the people. Our thoughts and actions represent our state, our true state, what's happening in our hearts and minds. And so what do your walls look like as we enter into this new year? Are you carrying in sinful habits? Are you carrying in a critical attitude? Are you someone who has a bitter tongue, bitter words spoken from your mouth? If they are, then it's a symbol that the walls of your life are pointing to the fact that there's something not quite right here. And if that's true, whether you're in this room or if you're worshiping with us online, listen, there, there is hope for you today. And here's what the hope is. If you've got dilapidated walls, let me give you a really clear, clear instruction and clear thing that we can do. Yield yourself to Christ. You got sinful habits, you got a bad attitude, you got a sharp tongue, yield yourself to Christ. When I say yield yourself to Christ, 
Give way to him. Surrender to Jesus. Put him in charge of your life. This is how you deal with the dilapidated, broken down walls of life. You yield to Jesus in the best way. The best way you can give way to him. Surrender to him. Put him in charge. It's to pray. Prayer is the way that we surrender ourselves to him. So we yield ourselves to Christ. And let me say, some of you like to be charged a little too much. I'm just saying, put him in charge. Put him in charge. Okay, so now we go back to this text. And now we're going to see what Nehemiah's response is to the broken down walls that he hears about, that he witnesses. He says this in verse 4. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I mean, he was deeply affected. These walls, which represented what was happening in Jerusalem at the time, I mean, it deeply affected him. He wept. He mourned. He fasted. And this happened over a period of days. This wasn't like a moment and he walked away. For days on end, he was bothered by what was happening in Jerusalem. You know, Robbie mentioned that during the month of January, we place a specific focus on life. Choose Life Month here at Christ Church. And I would say, you know, if you're wondering, well, why do we do that? What's this about? It's a biblical issue for us. And for us, it's kind of like Nehemiah coming to the walls and seeing them all broken down. When we consider that over a half million lives, well over a half million lives, are taken every year in this country by abortion, we weep. We mourn. This is something that we we just can't, we can't settle for. And it's because we believe that every human life is made, created by God in the image of God. We, We know that Jesus came from heaven to earth and honored this human life by becoming a man. And so because of these things, when we consider the atrocity of abortion, we we have no choice as a people of God but to mourn over it. That's why we do this. It's much like Nehemiah encountering the walls, the broken down walls. He was mourning, he was fasting, he was weeping for days. And what does he do? He shows where his priorities are. Because what does he do? He doesn't doesn't necessarily go and and panic. He, He doesn't just go bury his head in the sand. No, he prays. If Nehemiah had an Eisenhower decision-making matrix, he would have superimposed over the whole thing prayer. That's what he did. His go-to, his vision for rebuilding those walls, it started with prayer. That was his priority. And he sets out for us three pillars of prayer now we're going to see. Three important matters, three important uh, elements of prayer that we have to wrestle with. And the first one we see revealed to us here in verse 5. Let's go back to the text. Nehemiah 5 says, he begins his prayer by saying, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let's pause there because I want to point out to you that he doesn't just begin with his request. He doesn't just start with his cry for help. We so often do that, right? When we pray, what do we do? We go straight to our laundry list of requests. 
the things that, that we desire to see move in our lives, the things that we want, the things that we need. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah began by reflecting on the character of God. He began by, by, by praising God, speaking words of adoration to him. It's like the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to pray here in just a little bit, where we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a way of expressing adoration. We begin there. And that is where Nehemiah begins as he prays. And you know, the amazing thing is this. Whenever we begin with adoration, whenever we begin with words of worship and praise for God, there's a change in us. You know, Nehemiah was in a place of mourning. But by modeling for us that the way we approach God is by first praising him and giving adoration, we see a couple things. First of all, there's an awakening. There's something about praising God even in the midst of bleak times, that's like an awakening to us. I mean, look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73 says this, when I tried to understand all this, for Nehemiah, all this was the broken down walls. All this for you might be personal struggles, family issues, sickness, whatever it might, you know, divorce, tragedy. Whenever I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You understand what that's like? You're trying to wrap your head around something? He says, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. You know, there's a sense that when we worship God, things get put into perspective. There's clarity. There's an awakening that takes place in us. Not only that, when we, when we worship God, when we come before him with words of adoration, we praise. There's a change of heart that takes place in us. I mean, Nehemiah was no doubt downcast. But there was a change of heart in him. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to this verse. The scripture says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, when we worship God, we come before him face-to-face through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're transformed. We're changed. There's a change of heart. There's a healing that takes place in us. So when we pray, we begin with words of adoration, which bring us joy, even in the most heavy times. And so we see this with Nehemiah and his example of prayer for us. The passage continues. And we see in verse 6 and 7, as he's spoken his words of adoration, as he's talked about the Lord's covenant of love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. What does he say? He says, let your ear be attentive and let your eyes be open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. The people of God are right now confronted with a call to return to courageous faith. Very much so. With, through this prayer, this is absolutely a call to action and the people of God are confronted and they're called to return to courageous faith. And what does courageous faith look like? Well, measured against the word of God, Nehemiah sees only one way. Confession. That's where it begins. Confession. 
and I, and I really am, am challenged by his example of confession here. It's, it's personal guilt. It's personal guilt. Do you see this, what he says? He says that, that I and my father's house have sinned. He makes it personal. He doesn't try to skirt the issue. He doesn't try to hide from me. He says, no, no, listen, I have sinned. My, my entire family has sinned. We're a part of this. It's on us sitting on the outside looking in. This is personal. There's personal confession. It's absolutely important when we pray. We begin our services typically, the flow of our services, adoration and praise and worship for God. And then Robbie comes up. And what you do, he leads us in prayer. We start with confession. Taking personal ownership of our own guilt. He doesn't do that though only. He also, Nehemiah, takes corporate guilt into account. The guilt of the nation, including himself in that, saying, listen, we, we have not obeyed your commands. We have not obeyed your decrees. We have not obeyed your laws as they're written in your word. We as a nation, we have to do this. We as a church have to wrestle with this. How have we not obeyed the words of the Lord, the commands of God? Mm, if we search ourselves, I'm afraid to say we're going to find some ways that we are guilty and we have to confess. And I love that he's doing this day and night, it says. Day and night. He says, we're doing this day and night. We're coming before you praying day and night for your servants. In fact, if you read the next chapter, you'll find it's about four months that they spend deep in prayer. And what are they doing? They, they are absolutely praying with tenacity. They're praying with hard thought. There's deep involvement on the people's behalf. Mm. What a standard is set by these people as they consider a vision and priorities. And a return to the Lord, they confess. So we see that there's adoration reflected in his prayer. There's confession that is reflected in their prayer. And then go to verses 8 through 10. In Nehemiah chapter 1, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as the dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. You know, here in this last section of chapter one, Nehemiah draws on several Deuteronomy passages. And that reminds us of this. Not only do we need adoration and confession, we also need to pray God's word. We need to know God's word and pray God's word. He's drawing on several Deuteronomy passages. You know, Robbie mentioned we're going to be doing the, the proverb a day thing. You should do this with us. You get caught up. Look, one proverb a day, there are 31 days, so January 1 was, was Proverbs 1, and January 2, you get this, right? Proverbs 2. You can also keep up with this. You can catch up today. Go read 1, 2, and 3. And keep track of this because what we want to do, we want to store and treasure God's word in our hearts. And when we pray, we pray back the scriptures to God. We pray according to his truth. That's what's being modeled here. And significantly, he quotes the words in which Moses pleads for Israel in Mount Sinai. You can read this on your own in Deuteronomy 9. And he talks about scattering. You know, the people in the times of Moses, Israel was threatened with extinction then. 
They were threatened with being scattered. But then there was a pleading. Moses was pleading with God to gather his people, just like Nehemiah is, and to bring them back together and continue the work that he had begun. And there's an important phrase here that I got to point out to you in Nehemiah 1, and that's this. It says there in verse 9 at the very end, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's very important. This is hope for us. Nehemiah pleads, and he coached Moses, he says, listen, bring these people who have sinned against you, broken your commands, bring them together to a place that you have chosen as the dwelling place for your name. This is an overarching theme in the scriptures, the dwelling place of God's name, the dwelling place of his presence. That's what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament. The tabernacle represented the dwelling place of the name of God. That's what the temple was for King Solomon. It was the dwelling place of the Lord God's name. And this is the place where the the wonderful nature of God, his, his awesomeness, his purity, his majesty was embodied to the Jewish people, the dwelling place of the name of the Lord, the tabernacle, the temple. These were places where they thought the fullness of God resided. And here's what we see now as people who have the benefit of having the pages of the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true dwelling place of the name of God. He's the fullness of it. The majesty of God, the awesomeness of God, the purity of God is all summed up through Jesus Christ. Wow, it's incredible. Look at John 17, verse 24. You see here that uh, this is the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the final hours of his life. And here's what he says, just a snippet of that prayer. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. It's interesting, where was he physically? He was praying at this time when he says this. I want them to be with me where I am and see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me from before the creation of the world. Jesus is praying with tenacity and great thought and deep involvement. I mean, to the point where he is praying and sweating teardrops of blood. Droplets of blood coming out of him. That's how intense his prayers are. And so here's what I think we could take away from this. This idea of the dwelling place of God. This idea of Jesus praying and saying, look, I, I want them to have what, what we have here. I want you to, to, to them to be where we are and to see my glory. Prayer enables us to behold the glory of the Lord. Why do we pray? Prayer gives you an entirely different picture. Look, you want a vision for your life? You, you want to set goals and achieve goals? You, you, want, you want to sift through the priorities of your life? Well, here's Jesus at the most dire hour of his life. And where does he begin? His Eisenhower decision-making matrix says prayer. Before I go to the ultimate moment of my life, my human existence, and go to the cross, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a person, of, I'm going to pray. Prayer enables us to behold the glory of the Lord. 
So we pray and we, we speak words of adoration to God. We confess. We pray according to the scriptures. And all of this leads us to behold the glory of the Lord. I want to close by telling you a story about Britain in 1700s. This is 1756. And, and John Wesley, church father, writes in his journal. We have his journal. And he tells about a time when the king of England had called for a day of prayer. Imagine that. The king of England called for a day of prayer and fasting due to a threatened French invasion. By the way, this is all tied to George Washington's invasion, not far from here at at the fort down in Connellsville. What's that called? Uh, Fort Necessity. This is all tied to that in the French-Indian War. Listen to what the, the, the British did at this time. Wesley says, the fast day was a glorious day, the day where they ceased from eating. And he says, such as London has scarcely seen since the restoration. Every church in the city, I want to underline this, every church in the city was more than full. And a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God hears prayer. And there will be yet a lengthening of our tranquility. You hear that? Every church and the city was full. The people knew that they they had to behold the glory of God. They knew that to have a vision for their nation, they had to turn to the Lord. And, And here's the footnote that we get from Wesley's journal. He says this, he says, humility was turned into national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. (laughs) Story after story. In the Bible, outside the Bible, among God's people, points to how prayer has changed the course of history in nations, in Israel, in England, in our country. It's also changed the lives of individuals. And so here we are, on the cusp of a new year, I would say this, the people of God are confronted with a call to return to courageous faith. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Prayer is the key to everything you and we desire to be and do in this life. So, What's your decision-making matrix look like? Where's prayer going to fall this year? Only you can answer that. Only we can answer that as a church. What do we desire to see for our nation? What do we desire to see as individuals? Let's superimpose prayer over all of it, believing that we will see the glory of God when we come before him, adoring him, confessing our sin, and presenting our requests in accordance with his word in faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do come before you and we thank you for this example that you've set for us through your servant Nehemiah. We thank you, Lord, that he is one who recognized that the very place that we start in our priorities is with prayer. And I thank you, Lord, for the example he's given us as one who worshiped you and gave you praise with his lips and his heart and his mind and all of his being. He confessed, he owned his own sin as well as the sin of the nation. 
We thank you, Lord, that he is one who's shown us that we could pray in accordance with your scriptures. Now pray, Lord, you'd give us the strength and you would teach us to be this kind of people, that we would truly put first things first, be a people of prayer in this new year. Oh, Jesus, we yield to you. As we consider the walls of our lives and the walls of our nation, we thank you that we can come before you and we can say, would you be in charge? Would you take over? Would you have your way, Lord? And so, Jesus, even in our hearts now, as we prepare to come to this holy table, we say, have your own way with us, Lord. We yield to you, Jesus. We pray all these things in his powerful and matchless name. Amen.